Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 21st, 2019, starting at 12.25 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 220th episode of the show. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the astrological forecast for September of 2019 with uh, astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic. First, at the beginning of the show, we're going to catch up and talk about what's been going on over the past month and some miscellaneous astrological topics and discussion for probably the first 45 minutes, and then eventually we'll get to the forecast for September later in the episode. So I'll put timestamps in the description for this episode, so if you want to skip the pre-forecast chat and go straight to the forecast for September, just look below this video on YouTube or look on the description page for this episode on the astrologypodcast.com website to figure out where to jump to in the video. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes uh, by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Hey guys, thanks for joining me today. Hey. hey Chris. Hey, all right. It's been a month since last time. We are now, I think, fully free of the the meat grinder that was this summer's astrology in the Cancer Capricorn axis with Mercury retrograde conjunct Mars and everything else. We've finally started to have some lunation since that time. And I think for the most part, at least the three of us made it through relatively successfully, right? Yes, we're still relatively. here. Still yeah. uh, well, you're smiling. Both, you're, you're both still getting settled into your new places, but it looks like that's finally coming along and you're both getting to a new stage of settledness? Yeah, it's, I would say it's creeping along. It's movement, but it's not impressive in its velocity. <laughs> right. That sounds very much like a post-Mercury retrograde period when it's still like moving super slow, but it, and it's not quite there yet, but things are starting to move forward again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in that Mercury, what's interesting is we talked about Oh, the Mercury retrograde coming to an end at the end of July. Um, and it was mentioned, but in retrospect, I think underemphasized how much a uh, how much in shit condition Mercury still was after it was direct while it was still in Cancer. Um, mm. I saw a lot of the uh, I saw a lot of mistakes, or not even mistakes, but just um, decisions that were made or things that were put in motion during the Mercury retrograde um, show their their full difficulty during the direct phase that you know mm -hmm. people call the the shadow, right? The the direct shadow, where it was like, oh yeah, that thing that you ordered two weeks ago, that was the wrong thing, or the yeah. that thing, you know, what what got set in motion then, and it as I was telling you all earlier. It really made really reemphasized to me how important whole sign aspects are because even though Mercury was not um, configured by degree to Saturn, Pluto, or either of the nodes, it was still sharing an axis with all three of those troublemakers, and mm -hmm. so therefore multiply afflicted. And that's exactly how Mercury acted in the Mercury things. It was there were multiple afflictions. And I think that delayed people's post meat grinder celebration. Yeah, definitely. I always say that that's the reason why contemporary astrology for like the past hundred years, nobody can agree on orbs, and that yes. orbs are just something that's all over the place. And I think it's because the aspect actually comes into effect as soon as the two planets are configured by sign, but then it just grows more intense the closer they are by degree. And that's why you'll see a range of astrologers saying like 
no, it's like one degree orb, or no, it's six degrees or five degrees or 10 degrees or what have you. It's because there's no specific fixed amount where the aspect is fully there uh, by degree. It's just as soon as it comes into the sign and then the closer it gets by degree. Absolutely. And I think- what you got, what you're saying there, Austin. You know, almost the exact opposite was true as soon as Mercury moved into Leo, in that it became, to use your phrase, off axis to the Cancer Capricorn Palava. But as soon as it moved into Leo, it started picking up some support from Jupiter and Sagittarius. Even though it was not exact by degree, it's at least now getting that sign be- benefit or that sign relationship support. Yeah, and having uh, and sharing the sign with its own ruler, the sun, which was in Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. I'm not usually a huge fan of Mercury in Leo every year. It's not a place where Mercury has any essential mm-hmm. dignity besides a single bound. But this year, it was such an improvement over how Mercury was doing in Cancer that I did a little jig. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was really nice as it was applying, especially over the past few days, to that exact trine with Jupiter as well. Like as soon as it went into Leo, it started forming. But yeah, that trine between Mercury and Jupiter, and then even most of this month, like all of the planets hitting trines with Jupiter really played out relatively well. Yeah, we got a great piece of feedback um, in something else that I'd shared about online. I'd talked about how. Mercury Jupiter can be receiving happy or welcome news, especially in this sort of configuration where there's the trine aspect. Mm. And uh, someone on Twitter commented that someone they know who had been on the transplant list for a kidney for a really long time has received the news that they're going to finally be getting a kidney transplant. So it's a pretty dramatic example. And I'm sure there must be some specific things in that individual's chart but it's just lovely that they got that news, you know, in that 24 hours before the Mercury Jupiter trine became exact. Wow, that's really yeah, that's impressive. Great. That's a good example. Yeah, just a really nice happy example since we don't always have a lot of those. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. N- new organs for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. What were you going to say, Chris? Um I was just going to say it was like one of the things I'd been thinking about this month and noticing cuz it was more stark is a lot of the um, Lisa and I talked about this in the electional episode this month. A lot of the Sagittarius rising elections were just so good this month, and I could see sometimes somebody would initiate something or start something, or I would do something under Sagittarius rising and just see it be successful and really work out well compared to other rising signs that were not as like well situated this month. It just reinforced for me, even though. I think there's something to be said for paying attention, obviously, to the natal chart and to a person's transits. I think it's important. I think people often underestimate and don't realize how significant the chart of the moment can be sometimes in setting up a new foundation for success or failure for things that are initiated at that time. And sometimes that's one of the great things about technology and like having solar fire or astrogold or what have. What have you on your phone is just being able to know the chart of the moment at any time and to see this shift in the energies during the course of a day with the different rising signs. Absolutely. Now, would would you say that the Sag rising chart might be a little different this September based on Mars having moved into Virgo? Yeah, it really sucks that we, because now Jupiter's direct finally in Sagittarius and we've got day charts, but then suddenly Mars is like switched over into Virgo where it's 
overcoming Jupiter through a superior sign based square, and it's going to be applying to that exact square with Jupiter pretty much all month, which really does mess. Well, I guess it's not all month, but it's squaring Jupiter most of the month, which really does mess up a lot of those elections with Sagittarius rising because then even though Jupiter is well placed, it's being afflicted by Mars in those day charts. So it's like something it's like a placement where somebody has everything going for them and they excel in every area, but still something negative befalls them that that frustrates or cuts short their efforts despite that is the sort of well, broad so potential. I I would read it that way if um Mars wasn't deeply combust, but being so deeply combust and having no light of its own for the entire month, I think it has very little power to trouble Jupiter, which is part of how I read combustion. The planet doesn't get to do what it wants. It's totally overruled by the sun. See, I just read combustion, especially in the Hellenistic text, as something being hidden or internalized. So it's still sometimes manifests in that there is a negative event, for example, in this case associated with Mars, but it's not as obvious or as blatant as it could potentially be. Uh, but I don't know. We'll have to see how it goes and, and what sort of manifestations we see. Absolutely. All right. So what kind of usually we do some pre show pre forecast like chat discussions and we had a few possibilities this month of different topics and we actually have a live audience so if anybody here a live audience of patrons that have joined us for the recording of this episode so if anybody has any questions as we go along or discussion topics let us know one of the discussion topics that came up though that i've been thinking about a lot is this thing about how uh, especially for new students of astrology or especially younger astrologers, there's sometimes an issue where there's certain placements in your birth chart that just don't make sense or they won't sound like they resonate with you when you're younger. But it, then at different stages in your life as you get older, suddenly those placements will make perfect sense or your life will change in certain ways or even your personality in some instances will change in certain ways so that those delineations from, let's say, years ago suddenly fit your life perfectly or sometimes even startlingly well. And that's kind of an issue, I think, when studying astrology when you're younger is sometimes making the distinction between what is a delineation that truly doesn't fit or is incorrect versus what is a delineation that perhaps hasn't happened yet in your life but still might at some point in the future. Have you guys had that experience? Because I've I've had that experience, and that's part of what got me thinking about it. But um, have you guys had that experience of like reading something when you were younger as an astrologer that didn't quite you didn't quite connect with, but later on suddenly you connected with it more than you thought you ever could? You, go ahead, Kelly. <laughs> I was just gonna say maybe not exactly that, but something that in er my early exploration of astrology, where I sort of thought. This seems like a real negative because my understanding of astrology was quite limited at that point. And mm. then as I got to understand astrology better, realizing that something I thought might be a real problem could actually be something positive. And the example I'm thinking of is that in my chart, I have Saturn in the seventh house of relationships. And mm -hmm. almost every person who's newer to astrology that discovers they have this is like, oh my God, does that mean I'm never going to have a relationship? Or right. I even had a client this week who has Saturn ruling her seventh house, which is also how you can get like a Saturn tone affecting relationships. And she was like, 
is this bad? And I'm like, it depends on Saturn in the chart, you know, day chart versus night chart, the strength of Saturn, the condition of Saturn. So I've definitely had that experience of misunderstanding or underestimating something in the chart, partly because of my own lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's not exactly what you're saying, but sort of along those lines, I guess. I mean, that's almost maybe if part of what you're saying there or th- what it makes me think of is the thing where sometimes uh, you'll th- see a negative placement or what could be a challenging placement and think about it in like the worst case scenario. But then once you actually get to the event itself and it manifests and it perfectly matches the symbolism of the placement, but it's more oftentimes more manageable than your like worst fears about it could have been. And it, while it's not pleasant, it's something that you still like get through and you know, uh, you come out the other side. Is that part of what you experienced with that placement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost like every Saturn in the seventh house cliche. Most of the people I dated were substantially older than me, even Mm -hmm. in my teens and twenties, which of course horrified my parents, but that was just who I was drawn to. And astrologically that made sense. And then of course, because I know you're kind of getting into the timing piece, I get to my Saturn return at 29 And I meet an older man who is now my husband. And to get together, I have to move countries. So there's this big effort involved, but ultimately it's totally worth it because, you know, he's my guy kind of thing. So it seems to have a lot of the hallmarks of Saturn and even the timing is so Saturnian. But when I was 21 and 22 learning astrology, I thought it was this horrible thing that was not going to help me in my love life ever, but instead it's given me a lot of stability in that part of my life. Right. So I'm just imagining, so your advice then for like younger people, if there's like an age differential and you have to explain it to your parents is just like give them your chart and say it's in your your birth chart. Just say something like my Venus is conjunct Saturn or I have Saturn in the seventh or, you know, Saturn rules my seventh. They will be probably thinking you're crazy if they don't know astrology, but at least you'll feel like you're being true to yourself basically. Right. That'll just like compound the situation and make it worse. Maybe. I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish, how you negotiate your parents for sure. Um, Austin, you were going to say something though. Like, the, I feel like you might have a good story here too. Oh, I don't necessarily have a story. I just regard, um, I regard thinking whenever I look at a configuration in a chart, I think about not only what it is and, you know, what it says and, or the variety of things that it says, but also when will that come online? Like when yeah. will we see that in three dimensions as events? Um, we were talking earlier about you know uh, about a a purely psychological versus uh, or in contrast with a, an event based astrology, and you know the the configuration or the mindset or whatever the setup that may lead to great success in publishing, let's say, um, will be there when a person is one year old. Um, However, we would be in error to assume that that one-year-old is going to have great success (laughs) at publishing. And so, you know, that tells us that, you know, just starting with the the sort of uh, ad absurdum argument um, shows us that it takes a while, uh, that configurations have their own time. And that's how that's to me that's a huge part of what stacked time lord systems do you know like perfection zodiacal releasing the natural years of the planets transits to a certain degree 
um, and a variety of other things. They show you when the thing that says this kind of stuff happens actually comes online. And one of the one of the things I've been mm, not obsessed about, but focused on uh, for the I don't know the last several months, um, because I feel like it's a missing piece of mm. what we're supposed to be doing, is looking at what the natural years of the planets are. Ptolemy gives us um, basically a time lord system that's the same for everyone, where everybody starts in a you know gets a, uh, gets I believe four years of the moon. And then it goes to Mercury, right? Because you're when you're a moon, or excuse me, when you're a moon, when you're a baby, you're <laughs> when you're ruled. a moon, and yeah, and then when you're, you know, when you're in the like why, 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 and the monkey see, monkey do phase of learning up until roughly twelve, that's Mercury ruled. And then when you go through puberty, then you enter a Venus period, et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to see a person's venus as far as it testifies to uh, romantic relate and erotic relations when they're five right you might see hints of that but you don't see it played out and so you know uh, so it's, uh, a traditional astrology gives us a like when things naturally happen and that we need to be looking at configurations against the background of the natural human sequence uh, and there's a ver there are several versions of that in Vedic. It's called Nisargika, which just means natural. Um, I like Ptolemy's too, but you know that that would be the first step. And like, well, you know, I've got a Saturn thing that's good. Saturn's not going to smile on me when I'm 13, right? Uh -uh. Saturn, <laughs> Saturn, and you'll see that when it's activated by perfection, right? Like if, for example, with Kelly, for you with your seventh house perfection, where mm. which would highlight your Saturn in the seventh. That's going to look so different at 18 than at 30 and at 42. Like that's going to, we can assume that that's going to improve yes. each time, but it's going to yes. be rough at eight. We could say that's going to be actively malefic at 18, whereas at 42, that's probably going to, some challenges will come up, but they'll, they'll um, unless it's completely aggravated by other factors, they'll be much more negotiable. So yeah I, yeah, I see that as like what you should always be doing. What does this say and when should I see it? That's a really beautiful point, Austin. And I know we were talking a little before the show because one thing that always confused me in my early years of studying astrology when I was trained, you know, my entry into astrology was via the modern psychological route. And not everybody in that area, but certainly some people that I encountered would talk about how predictive or timing astrology was like, quote unquote, bad, or we shouldn't be doing it. And that seemed to really confuse me because one of the great gifts in astrology is the different timing mechanisms that it has. And I, I know that we're all very much on the same page here that, you know, we should do timing with our astrology. And that's kind of the whole point because not everything in your chart is active every given year. And there's so many different timing techniques, some of them directed and symbolic, some of them to do with transits, and then, of course, solar returns and things like that, that can let us know when certain themes or planets are going to really run the main narrative of our life. And perfections, I'm, it's one of those techniques that I'm just so happy has been um, reawakened or brought back into the astrological practice because it is such a useful and accessible technique. Uh, you know, that linking your age to the houses, you know, repeating on cycles of 12, basically. Yeah. That was the yeah. missing piece from modern transit theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what's really interesting is um, 
I saw a, an astrology pamphlet that was dated from the first decade of the 20th century, and it had a quick and easy guide to perfections. And so that was not lost like 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. That okay. was literally lost somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. It, it kind of blew my mind. Not even the middle. It was the late. Like that's actually a realization I've been have because I, I showed you guys um, that copy first edition of Lily. I yeah. got. And I've been collecting other books um, because I spent most of you know um, the mid 2000s and the following decade working on my book and trying to really excel at Hellenistic and ancient astrology from like the Roman era. <laughs> And I didn't focus as much on the later part of the tradition. It's coming from me. There's like construction. Oh, okay. I was like, oh my God. So we have this guy that lives downstairs who likes to do drumming randomly okay. for five or 10 minutes every night. And nice. I just thought that was him. So I was paranoid. But if it's you, Chris, I don't worry about it. That's fine. Yeah, my fault. It's I funny. might have to move to a different room at some point. Uh, What's happening? Is somebody like doing the, the big pots and pans back there? No, it's like we of course moved into this new place and they decided to like redo the entire exterior of the building. So there's actually like scaffolding all around my window. And probably by next month it'll be like even worse of people just like banging on the side hammering on the side of the wall. Uh anyway, I don't want to bore bore you with that. And no, I hope that's it's not true. Too distracting. Let me get back to my main point. I've been I focused a lot on ancient astrology because one of the things about traditional astrology, if you're gonna go back and study the tradition. Late Renaissance astrology is like 1500 years after the tradition started. And from the perspective of like Hellenistic astrology from the first century CE, Renaissance astrology almost looks like modern astrology for all intents and purposes. Like they're already starting to do weird things like minor aspects and uh, the sign equals house, like first house equals Aries thing. So there's a lot of changes by the end of the tradition. And so when I first started studying traditional astrology, I decided to focus on the early part of the tradition because I wanted to know what the true original tradition was before it changed over the course of the next you know, 15 centuries. But now that I did that and I published my book, I'm starting to catch up on the later parts of the tradition like the William Lilly type era and Morinus as well as some of the authors that came after that. And one of the things that I find interesting is some of those texts from like the 17th century, like Lily, were transmitted relatively consistently over the course of the next couple of centuries, all the way through to the early 20th century. And some of the early 20th century astrologers that we think of as modern astrologers were like still reading at least parts of Lily and other texts like that. And so, what we think of, what I realized recently is what we think of as modern astrology is really just. A product of the astrology of the Pluto and Leo generation, and that type of astrology didn't really fully congeal into like the 1970s and 1980s. But for us, since we all came into the field in like the late 90s or 2000s, that was like the astrology that was modern astrology, that was contemporary astrology, and those are the books that we were reading for the most part. But I've only had this realization recently that that. Astrology was still relatively recent and only a few decades old um, at that point. At that point, like for example, Pluto as the ruler of Scorpio, which was so ubiquitous and was just taken for granted by the time we came into the field, mm. that even was only a few decades old. Like astrologers were still sorting that out in the mid, you know, by the 1960s and stuff. Like if you read Isabel Hickey's book, Astrology of Cosmic Science. 
she doesn't even fully treat Pluto yet in the first version and had to write like a follow-up later, like a decade or two later to deal with it. So anyways, I was just responding to what you were saying, Austin, about perfections actually being transmitted and still being used relatively recently. It's because modern astrology, as we think about it, is a much more recent product than we often realize. Yeah, it's post, post-60s or at most post-World War II astrology. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, That's you guys, what were your first astrology books? I mean, for me, it was like Sequoian and Acker, The Astrologer's Handbook, and Alan Oaken, Alan Oaken's Complete Astrology, who consequently, I'm really excited I'm going to finally do an interview with next month. I just sent him a microphone, so Alan Oaken is going to join us on the show, I believe oh, sometime great. in September. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, one of the first books that I remember studying from um, Shirley Soffer, who's a New York-based astrologer, wrote something like a little astrology source book or astrology handbook. That was one of the first. And then I got to meet her a couple of years ago, which just was blew my mind. Um, but the big one that most people would know is Stephen Arroyo's Chart Interpretation Handbook, mm-hmm. um, which I just found a really great resource in the very beginning. It's something my teacher uh, recommended to me. And then Stephen Forrest and Liz Green were some of the big books that I read early on. What about you, Austin? Oh, it was the um, the series of Noel Till books that was mm-hmm. like learn astrology, I don't know, volumes one through seven or something. And it was like, you yeah. know, one, signs and planets, two, aspects and houses, three, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of these so far are all products of like the 1970s and forward yep. in terms of some of the dates, like 1970s, 1980s of, I'm just thinking of publication dates of some of that. Yes. Yeah. So we were all in that you know, post-60s or even post-World War II era that Austin just defined, the astrology that we were all touched by first, I guess, came out of that period. And then each of us has gone, has reached back beyond that, I guess, through our own exploration. Yeah. Well, it's just what we think of as modern astrology is just a much more recent development than I realized. And if you go back to the early 20th century, they were still drawing more on like the 17th century, the first astrologers who were writing books in English and stopped writing them in Latin the early 20th century astrologers were drawing on those still or were influenced at least by those more than you would think. And then in turn, Lily and the 17th century guys were drawing on Latin texts from like the 12th century, which were sometimes themselves translations from Latin of Arabic texts from the 8th century. So there's this interesting like interweaving and transmission in the history of astrology that goes all the way up until modern times but there was just some sort of disconnect that happened. And uh, I don't know, it's interesting to think about how recently that was, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it always amazed me, you know, as you, when you're referencing the Pluto rulership of Scorpio, I mean, Pluto wasn't even discovered a hundred years ago. So it, it always struck me as a bit odd that people were so obsessed about it being the ruler of Scorpio, for instance, because I thought, well, what did we do in 1920 for a ruler of Scorpio? And what did we do prior to that? And obviously, you know, it was Mars. So it, it is good to really make that point. I think that the modern stuff is really, really new. It's fresh. It's like baby astrology compared to the history of, you know, the length of astrology's history. Right. I mean, which is fine because sometimes there were some positive things that came out of that that were good developments where we almost needed that break from the tradition in order to innovate in useful ways. 
But now mm-hmm. it's useful to bring some of that older wisdom back and reunite it with some of the modern developments and advancements. Yeah. Well, it's just good to get the years right. You know, there's yes. um, there's sort of a story that's told in traditional astrology circles that Lily was the last time anybody did anything correct and that it's all just been a disaster since then. Since then. And there right, were yeah. certainly there were certainly some disruptions. Um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and the 20th century was nothing if not a big disruption. But if you actually look at the texts, even um, I have a Alan Leo's Dictionary of Astrology, and there's a ton of super technical traditional material in there. Right. Um, yeah. And that, you know, we need to be, you know, if we're actually going to give an accurate history, um, you know, we need to, we need to give an accurate history. Rather than a like, you know, it's been 500 years since anybody did anything right, which yeah. just isn't true. Right. Yeah. I mean, that to me is a little heartening because it just makes you realize that there was more of a continuous tradition and modern astrology was not as much of a like unique invention that came out of nowhere as we sometimes think or as you sometimes have to frame it in order to explain why the revival of older texts is important. That's a whole complicated topic. So let's let's move yes. on. Can you guys hear? Are you hearing? This yeah, I'm totally hearing mm-hmm. it. It makes me feel so much better about a the bongos that could go on downstairs, and also the crash bang that happened in last month's recording from my end. All right. Well, my yeah. apologies to listeners if this like completely ruins this episode, but actually maybe slightly related because I'm kind of failing at recording a podcast right now. One of my other discussion topics was. What if your destiny was to fail at something? And uh, this was like a little bit of a controversial discussion topic I started on Twitter, but the motivation was I was listening to, and I don't know if this will come across the same way to everyone else as I explain this as it did to me, but it was like the governor, a past governor of Mississippi, like passed away this past week. And I was just listening to NPR while driving, and they just did a really quick blurb about it and then said something very brief about her life, but then said, and she was the governor of Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina, and she was widely criticized for her handling of that event. And then they were like, and she then left office and struggled with cancer, and then she died this past week at the age of 78. And I was just really struck by it because I was like, wow, like the main thing that they focused on in terms of her biography, the main event that she's known for in that respect is having mismanaged, at least from whoever's perspective, or failed at her management of that event when it happened in her state. And it sort of made me think of something which is not something I haven't seen before, but it reminded me of a broader topic of sometimes a person's life can sometimes be characterized by a single failure or event. And obviously our our lives are complicated and there's like positive and negative things that we do but sometimes there's certain things that you're almost like destined for that could be characterized as like a failure. You might be destined to like fail at doing something, and that's almost part of your. Uh, I don't know how to, how to frame that because I don't want to put it in overly stark like terms, but almost like your destiny to fail at something at a certain point in your life. And sometimes that strikes people when you say that the wrong way because they start going into things about learning and growing from things but sometimes like what if it's at the end of your life and like that's it and there's not necessarily like a growth or a learning thing from it but it's just something that happened or or that's how things that was the confluence of events in your life 
Um, have you guys thought about or, or worked with or dealt with stuff like that? I, I mean, I take that for granted. That you take it, everyone, you take it for granted. So you don't think that's controversial? Um, no. Okay. Um, everyone, everyone will um, be put into situations that they are not capable of wrestling excellence out of. You know, especially if I, I don't know about her particular situation, but especially if you're looking at like a high level power structure thing, you know, if uh, if a system is corrupt or doesn't function, you might be the name attached to it for a couple of years, but you can't, you know, uh, institutions get built and degrade over decades, right? And so if that's, you know, uh, I, again, I don't know about her case, but you could easily, if you're working at that level of power, you could easily be put in a situation where the institutions aren't set up and you can make the best decisions possible or just be a normal person and try and not be perfect. Um, and it's going to look like a failure. Like, but that's sure. true in all walks of life and at all levels. So, you know, yeah, and that's, it's, it's okay. like, it's welcome okay. to mean, being a human. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, with the, look, th this sounds like a pretty absolute situation. Like, you know, the hurricane response was not handled according to certain criteria and therefore it was considered a failure, but there are certain things that you may fail at achieving the ultimate outcome, but the experience or the steps along the way is what does teach you something in which you grow. And I'm not trying to be simplistic, like every failure is a good thing, because uh, I think that, you know, sometimes failure is just failure. You didn't win the gold medal in the last four years of training have not led to where you want. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened inside you in that process of getting ready for that could be valuable and could have richness to add complexity to you as an individual, even if externally there is that sense of you falling short of the mark. It's it to my mind, and I don't know if I'm really maybe being as articulate as I'd hoped. The idea that learning and living is about trying and failing. You know that old little proverb of you know fall down seven times, get up eight. You just kind of got to keep going, and it also sort of then leads into that fate versus free will piece around you know can you have everything or can you be successful at everything? And and I don't think that that's true. I think that you you know, each of us has things that come easily to us and things that are real struggle and, and maybe closed doors for us this go round, for instance. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. Like, I feel like that's okay. And acknowledging that is okay. That sometimes like you can't have everything or sometimes you're even despite doing your best and making your best effort and there's nothing that you could have done better, like you still may not achieve something or hit the mark with something that you're aiming towards but that's that's just part of life and and being able to identify that astrologically should be something that we can do and are capable of like talking about without having to reframe it in like a psychological context in terms of like growth and achieving whatever you want in life or or what have you necessarily yeah well and uh on the growth and lesson level you know one good one good lesson is um uh, the annihilation of hubris. Mm. You know, if you think you can do whatever you want and that, you know, um, uh, God has a special plan for you and it's more special than anybody else, then, um, you know, maybe getting knocked down by circumstances under your control is an excellent lesson, perhaps the only lesson um, that will give you a correction there. 
Yeah. But and you know, that that's it's it's not fun. And when people are looking to astrology as entertainment um, or as a form of um strengthening their belief in themselves, then that's um that's not helpful. And there there are a number of circumstances, and this is different because what you can say as an astrologer that is accurate is different than what is um, most useful to say, like the subset of what is most useful to say in a given conversation with a given person at a given time, right? right? It might be that like, yeah, when you're 55, you're going to be in this situation where there's just fucking no winning um, and you're going to get embarrassed. Um, but you don't like if you're talking to a 22 year old and they're, you know, and what they need at that point is to self-actualize, right? To realize all the great things that they do have and to learn to embody those and to wield those tools beautifully. Why would you talk about the, you know, this embarrassing thing that happens in the late fifties, mm. right? I think that to a certain degree like that, yes, we can say astrology can, uh, more often than not accurately predict a situation like that, but that is never the whole, that's uh, very rarely, no, I would say it's never the whole of someone's life. And like, why would you bring up that one thing and dwell on that in a reading context rather than the thousand other things, which are probably more relevant? Yeah, definitely. What you, sh what you can say versus what you should say. Um, I just, I've always been held this position that we really need to disentangle some of these discussion topics from the con consulting room setting because sometimes we as astrologers end up focusing on like what should be said to clients versus the broader like con almost conceptual or philosophical discussion of like what can we do with astrology or what can we see as astrologers and that we need to be able to have those discussions without them getting stopped or entangled by the concern over what should be said to clients, which is a valid and legitimate sort of separate discussion topic, but it's almost like an aside from just what are we capable of seeing. And one of the interesting topics that is touchy is just like things like the astrology of failure that would almost be like an interesting lecture or something like that, because there's so many different ways people do fail and different extents there or are. degrees of failure that it's it's a much broader topic than you might initially think. It's it's something that has a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance in terms of of different levels of failure. Yeah, well, yeah it's a whole tarot deck full of tower cards. <laughs> totally. Even the definition of failure and the thing that keeps coming up as we're using that word today is, you know, someone's marriage ending, for instance, someone going mm -hmm. through a divorce and one person's take on that might be, I failed at this, or this marriage was a failure. And another person's take might be, it didn't last, but you know that's actually a better thing for me because I realized I was in the wrong relationship. So someone might say, there's a level of success because I walked away from a relationship that was stunting my growth versus someone else might say, this was a failure. So I guess there are some ways to absolutely quantify failure, but I think also sometimes it's perspective or point of view. Yeah, well, yeah and failure and success are relative to a particular aim or end. And I was thinking of yeah. uh, signification of Saturn recently, and I was trying to articulate it and condense it into the broadest archetype I could. And as close as I can get it at this point is just sometimes Saturn indicates that which does not come to completion, like that which does not complete. 
Mm. And that manifests in a bunch of different ways because there's a bunch of different ways that something that's set in motion can not be brought to completion. So, for example, um, somebody that's like writing a book or has a plan to write a book, but never successfully finishes it because they, of, due to let's say internal inhibitions, are ne- never able to like finish the project. Or um, a person that like wants to have a relationship but like never uh, ends up having a relationship due to various reasons. Um, I think in some ways there's different scenarios for failure, but sometimes Saturn can be one that's most closely associated with it due to this idea of something stopping it from being brought to completion, either due to external or internal circumstances. Yeah. I think if we're going to give one of the seven planets failure, it's got to be Saturn. (laughs) That doesn't mean that that's the only thing that Saturn means, but if you're giving, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, you're deciding who to give failure to, it's hundred percent Saturn. And also if you intend to keep living, but you die instead, as is the case right. with most people, then is that a that's a failure, you know, in these terms. And everybody fails uh, at that, except for the few people who are like totally decide when they're going to go. Some people will accept that it's their time to go after their hand is forced, but very few people are just like, "Yep, I'm going to leave my body. I'm going to disentangle, um, <laughs> you know, the knot that binds my spirit to my body, and I'll see you later." You know, we all fail. We all fail at staying alive. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, this brings one. Well, no, I was just going to segue. It's very satin. One <laughs> other your- possible discussion topic that's related that could lighten this, not lighten it drastically, but a little bit. Uh, but I was trying to define malefic energy at one point this month because I was really seeing there was a manifestation of it that was something like malefic energy in astrology sometimes manifests as that which causes discomfort or pain in others. As an inadvertent but necessary byproduct of actions which arise naturally on the part of the one taking on the agency of the malefic. And that sometimes you can come into another person's life and end up um, playing that role where you're like accidentally causing discomfort or harm in somebody else's life, um, which they re- perceive and respond to as that's like malefic. But sometimes the person taking on the agency of the malefic is just like doing their their job or not really paying attention and accidentally causes that in somebody else's life. Um, and I was trying to think about that just in terms of like what malefic means and how people mm-hmm. often perceive that versus or experience that versus what the energy is in and of itself. Sort of related topic here to some extent. Yeah, I would I would generally agree with that. With your your definition as given, when you are playing the role of the malefic, yeah, you're you're bringing you're you're not comfortable. Neither Mars or Saturn bring comfort. Um, you may cause harm is a very general term, but both of the malefics have um, an uh, a quality or an energy or a set of significations um, which lend themselves to um, destruction much more easily than sustenance or creation. Um, you know, I think of like a, a drill instructor, you know, whose job is to fucking scream at people, mm. right? And to and to break whatever, you know, uh, whatever ideas that the recruit has that will make them less effective as a soldier, right? That's malefic energy, um, uh, particularly martial in that case because of the yelling. Um, you know, if we're going to use the the stereotype, which is not inaccurate, 
And so, yeah, that's like somebody fucking yelling at you um, and making you do push-ups and your body hurts and your ego is certainly wounded. Um, that might ultimately be for the good of you and the people that you're stationed with, um, but the action is is certainly malefic. And of course, we can take on we're um, put in a position where we we need to take we take on the role of the malefic in um, an active sense where we don't accidentally cause harm. Um, if we look at um, most of human history in a lot of places, it was necessary for the humans to eat to kill animals. Whether that's true or not, where you are now, that's a different thing. But there are a lot of uh, uh, sort of ecosystems where the humans had to murder animals and devour them, mm -hmm. right? You are being a malefic if you go out into the woods to try to um, kill animals and devour them, right? That is taking on the role of Mars. I've actually, for a while, I've been thinking about the hunter as the first Mars, because human beings mm -hmm. were hunting way before they were organized into soldiers or before they were working iron or any of that. Um, and that's like, you know, that's, that's a very clear, malefic intention. Yeah. Well, and that was, that reminds me of the original topic or the original experience that brought that up to me that made me think about it was I was just like walking down the street, the sidewalk one day and focusing on my destination and stuff and just walking. And then I like looked down and there's just like a ton of ants everywhere. And I realized I accidentally stepped on a few ants or like almost did. And in the experience of that ant, they were just either like majorly injured or maimed Dead. or even killed. Uh, but for me, who let's say theoretically was playing or taking on the agency of the malefic in that instance, I was just like walking to my destination and just incidentally played that role in some other beings like sentient beings life and i think there's probably a lot of other scenarios where that's probably the case in the way that that sometimes manifests in different spheres of the world yeah like if we read the um uh you know if we read let's say the lunar return chart for the for those ants you were uh you were transiting saturn on top of their moon like you were you were read as the uh as the malefic entering their life Right. And ending it. Yeah. Well, and it just, it makes me think of other instances like that where sometimes you might be like driving your car and then somebody else like slams into you and they didn't mean to or play that role. But then transiting Mars was like hitting your natal ascendant that day or something like that. And that person happened to have natal Mars on their ascendant or something like that. And sometimes that's how it does work out. But sometimes the experience of malefic energy is just like, accidental or incidental in a way which is interesting to think about mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah. not intentional right and the yeah, same the same can be said of uh, benefics somebody can without meaning to um put you in an excellent position or do something which is which creates a very favorable situation to you mm. uh relative to you but they didn't mean to and of course people can try to help you um but yeah both intentional and unintentional uh with malefic and benefic Sure. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts on that, Kelly? Um, look, it's such a big topic. I have like 200 thoughts, but I think Austin did a really nice summary of like unintentional versus intentional. Yeah. Cause I was thinking even in conversations, someone can be really sharp at a time when you're about to express something really vulnerable to you or really meaningful. And then you shut down, you pull back and that whole thing that was going to come out just doesn't come out because somebody was either judgmental, which might be satin or critical, or they were angry and sharp with you. 
and vice versa. Somebody could just give you a very timely compliment or positive something that gives you a lift. So I think that the, I think one of the keys we're sort of alluding to is without meaning it and meaning to be it, we're probably all a little bit malefic in some of our day-to-day encounters. And we're also a little bit benefic just randomly according to our nature or who we're bumping into at what time. Yeah. Really loud over here. I apologize. Imagine if you were trying to record a podcast and there was basically a Mars eruption outside your window, like something is being malefic to you right now. Yeah. And sometimes that probably just has to do with synastry because it's like sometimes you come into, you meet somebody and you have like really great synastry with and all the pieces just happen to fall into place and they play a positive role in your life in different areas. Or other times there may be somebody where for some reason that's almost inexplicable, especially if we weren't paying attention to the astrology, you just don't drive with or you accidentally get in each other's way or accidentally press each other's buttons. But sometimes when you see the astrology, like the astrology itself is reflecting that, and that's probably part of the the missing piece there in terms of the secret reason for why that happens sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the one other thing that keeps running through my mind as you guys are talking is the idea of an oyster that creates a pearl. And that comes from some piece of detritus that gets inside the oyster that irritates the flesh of the oyster. So Mm. that triggers the generation of the enamel, which then leads to the creation of the pearl. And I keep thinking about how sometimes that accidental malefic stuff is almost the sharp word or the tough love that actually prods someone into a more productive direction, for instance. Like sometimes you just need to be told you're off track or you're being lazy or whatever it happens to be. And I think I'm getting into sort of a blend now of like malefic that can lead to a more productive outcome. And of course, I think about like the poison versus the medicine and the sword being wielded as a weapon or a scalpel kind of thing. So- yeah. You know, intention or what's done with something can can um factor in as well, I guess. Yeah, and just the fact that it can go either way in some instances. Like sometimes, no, you're just poisoned or you get poisoned by somebody and you get sick or you die or something like that, mm-hmm. versus other times, yeah, there can be medicinal uses of even dangerous things. But the ability to see it going either way and the ability sometimes to interpret that astrologically and know if it's going to be more constructive or it's going to be more destructive, mm. is useful. And I think it's something that we're all striving for in terms of refining our astrology and looking to traditional astrology for some of those answers. Yeah. Totally. Uh, one technical note I would add there is that if malefics rule favorable houses, that's more often the case. You know, mm. if, if Mars rules your first, you need to be challenged in yeah. order to rise to your best. If Saturn rules your 10th, like you need to learn patience. You need to like, you know, you need to, you need all those like slow grindy lessons that Saturn provides, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and sect is also a big piece of that for me as well in terms of constructive mm-hmm. versus more destructive experiences. Yes. Yeah. Right. All right. It's still a malefic, but yes. it leads to. Yeah. That, and I guess that's the point I was trying to make is that. It can be malefic and technically it might be all these sort of negative or challenging things, but there are ways to put that to productive use or productive outcomes. And Austin, I'm glad you said like the first or 10th rulership, because I actually see this a lot with clients who might have Mars or Saturn ruled like 10th house or MCs that actually work as 
symbolically the surgeon wielding the knife. So they're working with the problem or the difficulty, but they're going in to help be the solution or the remedy, if you like. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, this has been a really heavy discussion, and usually we don't take it like that in that direction or that far with the pre-forecast chat. So I want to lighten this up a little bit before we transition immediately to the forecast episode, because there's been some great astrology memes this month. And I want to give a shout out to Patrick Watson, a friend of the show especially, who has been on a roll with a series of memes and one of them, like his final one, which I believe was his finest creation, was like a set of significations of the houses using slang terms. Did you guys see this? It was brilliant. I did. I, I was all about the 11th house squad and the 7th house bay. Um, I loved the second house bread. I mean, I know other people are laughing at the uh, ninth house woke. Uh, do you, you want to go, go through and read them? Sure. Um, okay. Okay, so the first house, Watson is saying, it me. Okay. The second house, he's like, bread. I'm like, that's great, you know. Third house, bra, like brother kind of thing. Fourth house, fam. Fifth house, turnt. I think I might have missed something with that because I didn't quite get that one, but I could be showing my age or my lack of current lingo there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Okay, and then sixth house, yikes. You know, that's the part of the chart that is, uh, you know, like a bit, oh, not great. Seventh house, bay before anyone else. I love that. The eighth house is the sus place. Like, this is a bit dodgy here. Um, I don't ninth, know. Can yeah. you all explain sus to me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, like, oh, suspect. like suspect. Suspect. Oh, okay. Yeah, like this could be a bit, yeah, that bit makes, dodgy. That makes sense now. Okay. Um, and then ninth house woke, like, are you woke? 10th house goals. I thought that was fantastic. 11th house squad. Obviously, you know, who's in your squad. I think we can thank Taylor Swift for um, bringing that into the collective consciousness. And then the 12th house, the haters. I thought that was brilliant. And then yeah, everyone on Twitter was like, my chart is full of yikes and woke and haters or, you know, whatever houses were most emphasized. Right. Yeah, I was saying I told Patrick that if there's like one thing if if everything is like destroyed and like society crumbles and there's one thing that survives that shows what astrology was like in our time, I hope that it's just like this one diagram that somebody has to translate 2 or 300 years from now to figure out what astrologers were were thinking of the houses. You think that would yeah. be a good representation of astrology in our time, Austin? No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> very good. Um, I, it just makes me think about fate. Patrick has spent, you know, a decade plus um, of serious astrology, and perhaps yeah, right. it is his fate to be remembered for this right. rather than anything else that he will ever do. Patrick, I hope that's not the case. I but mean, it, he, I, he alternates. Funny. I, I would. I don't know if I would. I might put Squad in third. By the okay. way, okay, um, okay, yeah. We so could have how a, we... we could have a debate about that. Oh, I like it. <laughs> All right, this could be a longer lecture or workshop than perhaps. I, I mean, I suggested to him he might want to turn this into like a talk because this would be a good talk because there's something funny about it, but also like he actually did a good job of connecting like the meanings to the specific houses. So, well, that's I think what makes it so brilliant is that it is funny in just a simple first glance perspective, but it's also relevant if you go deeper into it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. you can see that meme and more other astrology memes because he did a whole series on the the planets and like other stuff 
on his Twitter page, which is at PWA, uh, no, P Watson Astro. So yeah, just do a search for Patrick Watson or PatrickWatsonAstrology.com and you'll find his Twitter account. Yes. All right. I think that's it for pre-forecast chat. Uh, why don't we transition now into talking about the astrological forecast for September of 2019? Perfect. Let's do that. Let's do that. All right. So let me first throw up the transit chart, which shows you where the planets start off at the beginning of the month in the signs of the zodiac, and then how far through the signs of the zodiac that they'll get by the end of September, basically where they'll end up. Uh, so this artwork was made by Paula Bellomini, and this is also on the calendar that we sell each year. So um, as you can see, basically a bunch of stuff starts out in late, the inner planets start out in late Leo and early Virgo, and then make their way through most of Virgo and into Libra. We've got uh, lunations, we've got a new moon in Libra this month, and a full moon in Pisces. What else? We've got Saturn stationing direct in Capricorn. Uh, what are some of the other major highlights of the month? Well, everything moves through Virgo. Um, everything makes a square. Uh, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, and Mars all make a square to Jupiter and a trine to Saturn at a in a very tightly compressed period of time. We mm -hmm. have a relatively rare conjunction between Venus and Mars, and that occurs at oh sorry that occurred at the end of August. But we still have Venus and Mars being um, being largely invisible all month, and then Mercury goes invisible as well. You know, and that's something for students of astrology to note is when you have a lot of things conjunct the sun, it means that you won't be able to see them. They're not uh, capable of arising independently under their own light. But the second and third have a really interesting sort of combo superior conjunction. We have Mercury, Mars, and the sun all within the same degree for a little while. And you know, Mars conjoins the sun every two years. Mercury um, direct conjoins the sun three times a year. Um, but we don't we very rarely see Mars and Mercury conjoining the sun um, together and each other within one 24 hour period. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting. and that that kicks off the month. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, yeah. so did, uh, do y'all do y'all take the uh, taked? <laughs> taking a look at that yeah i have i was just checking to see like quite the you know it really is this very intense short time frame and i think you really spelled it out beautifully there austin like the sun and mars are together once every two years and when that happens it's very unusual to have mercury there at the same time and it does i'm like this is definitely something special and different chris you're showing your entire screen right now uh okay sorry yeah, emails and stuff your email i'm like <laughs> no i was checking to make sure and there's no emergencies uh okay. yeah sorry i'm trying us. to like that's mute okay. myself so there's not huge clanging in the background okay that's okay that was successful that part was very successful <laughs> um <laughs> so um yeah, I, I think it's really special and i mean look it's all happening in virgo and it just really feels like this hyper Virgo energy, but from an introspective, reflective place because of that quality of planets being hidden by the sun, if you like. 
Yeah, so we don't usually have that. We we had the conjunction of the Sun and Venus at the very end of the month, and then we have of last what is now last month, and then the quick uh, conjunctions at the beginning of this month. And then um, as we move forward, we end up getting a bunch of squares later in the month with Jupiter and Sagittarius. And especially in terms of the square between Mars and Jupiter, that becomes one of the defining sort of aspects of the month, it feels like. Uh, I believe we I, I also get- define, I, w- I wouldn't define the month primarily by that, but that's certainly a feature. What, you know, one, one thing uh, playing into Jupiter, we also have the fact that Jupiter and Neptune do their third and final exact square. And so mm-hmm. all of the planets in Virgo, that aspect one, aspect both sides of that square. All the planets yeah. in Virgo will oppose Neptune and square Jupiter and trine Saturn at om- in the same couple days because those planets are all three of them are in the middle of their signs. And so planets in the middle of Virgo are going to hit all three of those at once. And that's 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 really interesting. And it's a it's a dynamic we get one, two, three, four times, not even counting the moon, which will mm. also stimulate that axis. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on there. And furthermore, it's Saturn as it's stationing direct, right? So Saturn's input. The direction and the directionality of Saturn's input um, is going to be is in the midst of changing while everybody's talking to Saturn and Jupiter and Neptune. So there's uh, there's a lot going on. It's it, it is just a ton of Virgo, but it's also um, a ton of things in Virgo having a really complicated conversation with three mm. outer planets. There and that phrase of like a complicated conversation that almost feels like a theme for this month because. All the planets are aspecting so many things, like the personal quick moving planets, if you like, Sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, the interactions with Saturn and with Jupiter particularly, but also with Neptune later in the month with Pluto too. There's just there's also just a higher volume of aspects this month as well. Um, I know last month we were like, are we done already? Because there was just less going on and there is a we were lot like, more. Yeah, things yeah, are trying I- Jupiter. Yeah. And this month I was watching the data come up and I'm like, oh my God, there's like triple the amount of aspects happening this month because uh, Mercury and Venus are moving a little bit more quickly. Mars is in Virgo and Virgo happens to be one of those signs right now that's on access to everything. You know, if you're a planet Mm -hmm. in Virgo, through your tour of Virgo, you're dealing with Uranus and the nodes and Neptune and Saturn and Pluto and Jupiter. So there is does that feeling of like juggling a lot or having to multitask and really be on your game because which, you know which it's is, not just one thing. Which is very Virgo shaped. It really is, isn't it? Because that's the way Virgo kind of excels. Yeah. And those are those are that that's the nature of the challenges <laughs> that yeah, are brought the to nature Virgo. Nature of the challenges. Handle yeah. this list of 75 things in the next four yes. hours. In the next uh, four hours. And I don't know if we touched on this, but also we get the third and the final, the last of the uh, Jupiter-Neptune squares this month as well, later in September, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mentioned that earlier. And that okay. that's what makes all the planets squaring Jupiter more interesting because they're not just squaring Jupiter, they're also squaring Neptune just as the two are about to make their third and final. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, they're in Virgo, so they're going to be opposing Neptune and squaring Jupiter. Yeah, it's. I mean, we had this and period earlier in the year as well. You mean when everything was going through Gemini and Pisces? Yes. 
Yeah. Right. Um, so usually it seems like the third transit most of the time in astrology is like the most clear one or the the one where you sort of get the lesson of whatever it was that that transit was about. Um, and it'll be curious, especially I would think for people that have mutable placements around the middle of the signs, if this is like the final pass where they sort of see what that transit was about for them. Yeah. yeah or see the, or I would say in many cases, see the outcome of actions and uh, of actions taken during the first two. Um, and then, yeah, also lessons. Um, if it was happening to them, then they'll see that third thing. If it was something that they were doing, um, then they see it's like, okay, and this is how it worked out. This is what we set yeah. out to do. And now we're getting into that reaping results phase. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just to add a little extra mutable madness, maybe, um, is of course the full moon this month, which happens uh, September 14th in the sign of Pisces, kind of in the thick of Mars actually squaring Jupiter and opposing Neptune. That's kind of all happening within a few days. Yeah. And that's going to be September 13th for people on the North American continent. Yeah. That 14th should be Eastern time. Uh, maybe not. I'm just, uh, it, yeah, it'll be it, just, so it'll be just after midnight Eastern time. Right. But it's the night, it's it's Friday, it's the night of Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, a full moon on a Friday night, that's always uh, extra fun. Um, so yeah, and that's that's probably going to, that's going to slam home, for lack of a better term, all of the, all of the stuff we we're talking about, right? The yeah. The Neptune input, the Jupiter input, and the Saturn input. Because that because the moon is opposite the sun during the full moon, and so it's going to aspect all of the same things uh, in this case. So yeah, um, even though you know we get some of those 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 oppositions and trines and squares will all be happening over in the leak the leak the week leading up to the full moon, and then the full moon will you know will um, will make that super obvious, right? It, it bring it'll bring those things to a crescendo. And it is a full moon in Pisces, very near to Neptune, so expect a lot of emotion or a lot of sensitivity, as well as some. I don't know. I think as much as a full moon can be the bright light of the moon with illumination, this does feel a little bit confusing. Or maybe you know having a couple of drinks to kind of wash the week away at the end of um, end of the day on the Friday. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It's interesting I mean, that the the Mars opposition is exact at nearly the same time with Neptune. So it's a full moon conjunct Neptune, and then Mars is at seventeen Virgo, exactly opposite Neptune at seventeen Pisces simultaneously. Yeah, there's just all sorts of stuff happening. You know, we got benefics, we got malefics, we've got whatever Neptune is. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever way Neptune um, feels like going. Yeah. Well, and um, so um if uh, unless you all think it's inappropriate, I think it's worth breaking down some of the longer-term constituent pieces here, right? Like Jupiter and Jupiter in Sag in general, now direct, uh configured to Neptune and then what does Saturn stationing direct look like? You know, we've had Saturn mm. retrograde for four months uh, at this point. 
um, because that's what all of the the more swiftly moving planets are configuring to, right? They're all spotlighting Jupiter, Neptune, and Saturn. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that station of Saturn direct, I think, is really crucial, especially for people that are going through a heavy Saturn transit right now, because when it slows down in stations, especially direct, it sometimes like powers up Saturn, and if that's positive, constructive thing for you, then it's going to be an important intensification of that energy and a change in direction where somebody can start moving forward again after maybe a period of treading water with whatever constructive business they've got to accomplish. Uh, but if Saturn is more like a difficult setback transit for them right now, if they have things at around 13 degrees of the cardinal signs, then for some people it's going to be more like um, a setback that causes a major challenge in their life at that time and feels like that energy is at its most intense. Yeah, I, I, and I think that, uh, yeah, that's great. I, I, I think that the way that this month is set up, it's going, or at least the first half of this month is set up, it's going to err on the side of the constructive because we have four planets trining it, right? Mm. And so, you know, like the, the tone of a lot of the month is set up to be in accord with, um, you know, with concrete structural improvement, which would be, you know, a constructive Saturn in Capricorn. I would also say that I find in general that the direct phase of Saturn after the retrograde is more proactive uh, archetypally. The Saturn retrograde phase, um, you know, will be dealing with the with structural problems and perhaps dealing with chaos that needs to be uh, managed or brought into order, whereas Saturn direct um, after that uh, tends to be more intentional. Be like, okay, now back to that thing that I was trying to build. What am I trying to construct versus what? Oh, I don't know. Structures am I trying to escape or renovate? And so you know, a bunch of trines put planets in accordance with that work, which is you know better than it could be. Yeah, it feels like there is maybe a little bit of cohesiveness or collaboration or a sense of focusing on the one thing or the big thing and putting a substantial effort behind it for a period of time. Yeah. Well, all right. So, like so remember if we if we look at when planets are 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 trining Saturn, right? They're going to square Jupiter and oppose Neptune like the day after. Right, so we're yes. this, the sequencing of our experience is going to be like, oh yeah, oof, the you know leading up to a trine with Saturn for each of the planets. Okay, uh, you know I need to get my shit together. You know this we need to get back on track, or that's done. Now I can move. Now I can get back to this. But then immediately after, it's Jupiter Neptune, right? And so I think you know, uh, and so there's a lot of, whew, how should we say with Jupiter and Neptune. Um, that's that's like ambitious, positive, potentially delusional, maybe <laughs> uh, maybe maybe just extraordinary. You know, if we're looking at Jupiter as being, um, you know, a focal point of ambition is too crude a term, but uh, uh, aspiration. Uh, mm -hmm. Jupiter is a focal point of aspiration. What we're aspiring to with Jupiter Neptune. Um, you know, is pretty fantastic. 
and that and I, I mean fantastic in the in the sense that like oh that's fantastic but also that it might be too fantastic and just be a fantasy but all of those yes. are are tied together it's saturn and then jupiter neptune um and so that that's part of what really interests me about the sequencing of this and it's all within a few you know it's all within basically 2 days for every planet yeah that's a really beautiful point austin that it's a quick turnaround from the heads down bum up of working and, and being productive or creating some tangible structural output versus diving back into that visionary, you know, sometimes overreaching, but sometimes maybe lifting your game piece of the Jupiter Neptune square. Yeah. And on for, you know, in some cases, that's the perfect combination, right? Is having that heavy, responsible structural input from Saturn and that contextualizing the Jupiter Neptune, right? Mm. Jupiter, if it was just um, planets uh, interacting with Jupiter Neptune without any sort of grounding, well, then that might be, you know, the, the, the chances of floating off into the clouds is pretty good. And if it was just Saturn without anybody, any like, like, this is what you have to do, but without any aspiration or excitement, then that's a bummer. But we're, we're kind of getting both here. Um, which is maybe not so bad. Not so bad at all. I mean, one of the things I think about just in general with combinations of Virgo and Capricorn is this kind of precise, enduring productivity where there's a, a sort of a specific goal or target that you're looking to hit and this sense of just working towards that. And so I, I do think that is, you know, particularly in the first part of the month when we've got all of those planets moving through Virgo, that productiveness um, is there. And I like that it's like almost like you'd get through your hard day or your busy week with the trines from Virgo to Cap, and then you get you get to remember why you're doing it or you get to take a break from having done that. And in either case, that is where some of that inspiration from Jupiter and Neptune can be a nice counterpoint to the um the getting the work done of, of the Virgo Saturn. Virgo Capricorn, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well in Virgo Can I is interrupt very you guys for a second. By all means. Yeah. Uh so the noise over here has gotten worse and like so bad, but I just wanted to interject a funny astrological observation, which is that we didn't really elect the time for this episode, but Mars has been passing like right over the midheaven in my location over the past little bit here right as this is starting to happen. So I'm not interjecting this conversation as much as I could just because there's crazy noise and if I start talking uh, you'll both hear it on the Zoom call, but I thought it was a funny little electional note if you hear. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. I mean that Very sounds nice. like a lot of Mars. <laughs> well, what's funny is like they haven't been working outside my window. They've been working on the other side of the building for the past like 3 or 4 weeks now and this is the very first day where as we started recording, I think they suddenly are now just deciding to work outside my window uh, with hammers like on the side of the building. Anyway, Mars conjunct the midheaven, everybody. Love it. So that, Talk about well, um, the lived example saying. of the malefic. Yeah, well, exactly. And also, if, if I'm going to do a quick sketch uh, for Mars and Virgo, the handyman, uh, or handy person, like the person, you know, the person yeah. who comes in and works on stuff and fixes stuff and bangs on it, like that's Mars and Virgo. That's one of the like top three Mars and Virgo images. It's the Knight of Pentacles. Yeah. 
And also just the importance of sometimes the chart of the moment and paying attention when planets are like passing angles, as sometimes um, there can be like a literal manifestation of that. And that in and of itself is like educating and instructional if you're paying attention. Yes. Albeit annoying in this instance. Okay. And somebody, Teresa, in the chat, the live chat also points out the moon conjunct Uranus in our lovely electional chart today, which is probably a good point as well. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, no. Oh my go gosh. Back. Is there an, like, this is great. Yeah. So um, back to what you both were saying. Austin, you were talking about the Jupiter Neptune and the sort of ideal or aspirational focus of it sometimes. Sometimes it can seem, though, like attempting to expand and move forward to something and not really having a clear idea of what the goal is or what like the end thing is in mind. Like I've seen both versions of that. Like there's definitely the super idealized, like I have this amazing image and I may or may not like hit that mark. And then there's the other one of just like the nebulous need to move forward, don't really know what the end goal is in mind, but hopefully I can sort of like stumble into something vaguely positive in the end. Yeah. Well, what I would say is that Neptune doesn't recognize limits. Jupiter is expansive, but recognizes limits, right? It wants to expand it into, um, you know, a big space, but it's not an infinite space. Whereas Neptune doesn't recognize there being a limit to the space, right? It's anything you can dream. And so in order to navigate that particular collision of powers in a favorable way, um, you need to add the limit. Neptune's not going to do it for you, mm -mm. right? You can have, you know, Jupiter and Sag is super motivating and capable. It's a great influence. And then Neptune expands that vision. But, um, and then whether that's going to disperse the vision to the degree, uh, to what's the word, um, uh, when, uh, when you, to, to dilute it to such a degree that it doesn't matter at all, or whether it just adds, you know, or whether it just takes it to the next level, you know, a lot of that's, uh, how you handle it. And I think the, uh, one of the key pieces is you have to d provide the limits because Neptune's not going to. And that's another reason why that it's kind of nice that planets are trining Saturn at almost exactly the same time that they are opposing Neptune, right? Because if any if any planet can offer you a lesson on limits and structure, it's our buddy Saturn. Yes, yes, Definitely. it is. Yeah, and then I would just say that all of that basically rolls into the full moon, and the full moon hits the same axis. It lights up all the same stuff. And then things change right after the full moon. Yeah, it's like a whole different ball game, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing just on the Jupiter-Neptune piece, you know, Neptune is taking its cues from Jupiter and Sag right now. And I wonder if that can slightly skew it, not towards containment, but to just help keep Neptune in touch with a little bit of reality, if you like, that you know, this Jupiter square Neptune, it's the third in a series of three that's been going on all year. If you've been striving for quite a big dream or quite a big push, I mean, you're going to see how close you can get. And it may be that you fall far short because you didn't back up that dream with consistent effort. It may be that you've done enough effort to get a version of that hope or that vision. 
into your life. Maybe not completely, but at least enough to keep you going. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're talking about uh, Neptune being in a Jupiter ruled sign, I kind of feel like it's like Jupiter's like, so I've got this really great aspirational, ambitious plan. And Neptune's like, you know, uh, let's say like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to write a book, right? And then Neptune's like, what if the book was made of diamonds? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> and Jupiter's like, that would be amazing. We're not going to do that. But right? we're just going to write the manuscript. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so Neptune's like, and some of those, some of the suggest the imaginative suggestions might be integratable, and then some of them need to be cast aside, right? Like, yeah, mm, yeah you know, yeah, I don't know no. that a a seven hundred thousand dollar book is going to sell very well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then, I mean, Austin, you've kind of alluded to this, but. You know, the big change right after the full moon, is, well, the first part is Mercury and Venus both change signs. They're kind of yep. holding hands together right now, skipping through the Zodiac BFFs, and they're leaving Mercury's sign and taking up residence in Libra in Venus's sign. And it's yeah. it's very much like a mid-month mood shift with this. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, it happens, like yeah, it happens I believe, in the 12 hours following the full moon. Yep. Right? They're both... Uh, yeah, it's thirteenth yeah, um, and fourteenth. It, yeah, it's um, it's mm. boop, boop. Yeah, it's within twelve hours after the full moon. Mercury and Venus both change signs. Um, yeah, and that's pretty. That's a pretty exciting, fun thing. I personally like that a lot because it and it brings us into a window where now both benefics are in yes. signs they rule, and Mercury is Mercury, although less excellent at just Mercury stuff in Virgo, is now in in Libra where it's completely competent with the ruler of Libra. And right it's uh, and it's no longer sharing a sign with Mars, right? Um, and so that's pretty nice. It's not perfect. Um, but as far as general electional windows when i did my my exploration my cartography of the year last year um this was one of this was like a two weeks the second half of september was one pair of two weeks that i really liked and so that's mm -hmm. actually when as above um my my event with gordon white uh is scheduled um is the <laughs> it's actually we're beginning just as the moon enters aries uh on the 14th and opposes and therefore is configured to both Venus and Mercury. Um, Love and it. whole sign, you know, all that stuff. What? Yeah, I'm totally with you, Austin, on having the love for this Venus in Libra period. It is something that I've been looking forward to all year, just to have both the benefics in good condition. In addition, they happen to be in signs that form a sextile, so that just adds a nice little juiciness there. Um, as you said, it's not perfect because Libra is now back on, you know, kind of dynamic or hard axis with the Capricorn stuff. Um, Absolutely. But we, we just, I, I personally just love the shift of Venus from a dignity perspective out of Virgo and into Libra. It's one of those, you know, not every planet changing signs has such a radical change from, you know, a limited place to a place of like peak function. But the Venus yeah. shift from Virgo to Libra is one of those, you know, going from like a low to a high overnight, basically. 
Yeah, what? yeah, it's um, it's quite nice. One of the things that's a little trickier was tricky when we were looking at the elections for this month and trying to take advantage of Venus uh, being in Libra and its home sign was that Saturn hanging out there in mid mid Capricorn stationing direct this month means it takes a little while before Venus clears Saturn so that it's like it's like applying to a square with Saturn for most of you know a good week or two and unfortunately now that Jupiter is direct and has been moving forward again it's no longer earlier in degrees than Saturn so we were in a period for most of the summer where planets applying would hit Jupiter first and then Saturn but now it's switched so that some of them like Venus going through Libra will square Saturn and then eventually after that sextile Jupiter uh but it's just yeah. a tr- tricky thing yeah 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 it's um right there is uh there is what there is a fly in the ointment for sure and so you know the part of the way I've approached that electionally is sort of hit Venus way early or way late yeah to um, give some space right. but in one thing and maybe I'm over apologizing or going on my way to see mitigating factors but it's worth noting that um there's a lot there's a fair amount of reception between uh between uh Venus and Libra and Saturn and Capricorn Libra yes. is Saturn's sign of exaltation and um generally speaking v- Saturn likes Venus that may not be good for Venus but it's good for Saturn um and so some of the some of that Venusian uh goodness may not uh during uh, during excuse me during Venus's time in the middle degrees of Libra may not be as good for strictly Venusian matters it will probably in, it will probably help Saturnian matters because it's in such a favorable uh, relationship or it's it's in such a favorable place as far as Saturn is concerned and you know there there's a there's a potential for how should we say a mutually constructive interaction between the Saturn, uh, Saturn, excuse me, between Capricorn and Libra, than there would be in a lot of other um, squared signs, and that doesn't mean like do you know schedule your thing the day that Saturn square or Venus square Saturn exactly, but there is some mitigation there. I I completely agree, Austin. That as far as Venus Saturn aspects go, these two signs are more productive or more conducive to finding some sort of outcome that everybody can get on board with or live with. Um, as you said, it's still a little, can be a bit harsh for Venus, but it's almost like Venus can help maybe take some of the edge off Saturn here a little bit. He's still doing his thing, but maybe with more of a smile on his face or at least a little bit more consideration of others. It looks like the Venus-Saturn yeah. square goes exact on September 25th for those who are wondering about that. And this is probably a good segue then because um, you know, funny enough, the election for this month, we actually decided to go with the Venus le- election with Venus and Libra. Lisa Scheim picked out this election this month, and I think this was our highlighted election for September for the entire year. We also had some Virgo, uh, Mercury and Virgo elections earlier in the month, but we decided to highlight this one for the purpose of the forecast and the main election for this month and save the Mercury and Virgo election for the Auspicious Elections podcast. So the Venus election is set for the end of the month for September 29th at about 7.10 a.m. with about, say, 8 degrees of Libra rising in your location. 
So basically what you should do is cast a chart and set it for your city where you're going to start your election, set it for about September 29th at around 7, 10 in the morning, and adjust the chart until the ascendant is at about 8 degrees of Libra, just so you can start the election just after sunrise. So basically this is just probably a few minutes after sunrise that, that day where the sun has just risen over the eastern horizon in Libra, and the rising sign itself is in Libra as well. So what you'll end up with is an electional chart that has a pretty heavy Libra stellium, where this is shortly after the new moon has taken place in Libra, just the day before. And so the sun is at 6 degrees of Libra in the first whole sign house. Uh, the moon is at 17 degrees of Libra. Venus is at 18 Libra. And Mercury is at 24 Libra. So basically, this is a Venus election. Um, we tried to focus on getting it so that Venus is separating from Saturn rather than applying, just so that you can still get Venus and Libra, but not have to worry about that like sort of boundary or the obstacle that Saturn presents, even as a surmountable difficulty in that instance, because it's separating. So it's ideally, or at least hopefully, something that's moving into the past. We were trying to get. Uh, Venus applying to Jupiter, but it's a little bit tricky to do. As you can see, there, there's actually variations to this election. Like if you back it up by just a day, you can end up with Venus applying to a sextile with Jupiter at 17 degrees of Sagittarius, but then you end up with a waning moon at the very end of its cycle, which is usually not as good for starting new things, but can be very good for wrapping up old things. But if you're not trying to wrap up something old or bring something to completion, then I'd probably recommend using the one that takes place on the 29th after the new moon. Uh, the moon itself is at 17 degrees of Libra, and it's applying to a conjunction with Venus. Venus is in its own sign. Only thing I don't like about this election that we couldn't really get around is even though Venus has cleared Saturn, it's, all, it's still applying to or is closely squared to Pluto. So you're sort of putting like a Venus-Pluto signature in this chart, but sometimes that can be okay. You just have to be careful about going to extremes. So when Patrick was giving some of his significations this month, he left out Pluto. And one of the significations I realized for Pluto that's a really good summary of what it often does is to overreact to something, to like go too far. And sometimes that's the danger, especially with Venus Pluto aspects, is just going overboard with something related to Venus. Otherwise, as long as you can navigate and manage that, it's a relatively good Venus selection for artistic or creative or other affairs that have to do where with um, aesthetics or where aesthetic appeal is an important part of the process. This would be a good election. It's also not a bad election for communication with Jupiter in Sagittarius in the third and Mercury in the first with Venus uh, relatively well placed. Mars is in the 12th, so it's not that great for, uh, as Patrick says, uh, haters. Could be a potential problem with this election, but otherwise, this is our electional chart for September. Does this take, does this um, capitalize on some of the Venus and Libra stuff that you were also going for in your election, Austin? Um, yeah, there are some things I like about this. One thing that I just noticed is that if this was. It, it, the same election in, I believe, an Eastern time zone mm. will put uh, Venus between aspects to Jupiter, and or will put the Moon blech, between aspects 
to Jupiter and Venus, which is mm. in a supremely protected um, yeah. place for the moon. Um, I'd have to check that in different time zones, but that should be possible. Um, and then that's if, nice. If it was because Eastern? Then, well, even on the screen that's showing um, because... Oh no! I beg your pardon. Well, it's, it's, I beg your pardon. Yeah, it, you, it's applying to both. But what you're saying is separating from one and applying to the other. Yeah, because then you'd have the moon. Because um, the moon is still too close to the sun for my taste. It's it's you know it's it it's good, but like I want to. If a moon is that dark, I want to give it as much help as possible, um, especially yeah. as the ruler of the tenth. And so yeah, in um. And I believe in an Eastern time zone, you'll get a supremely protected moon. I mean, it's already, it's already definitely getting fed benefics. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, that was just something that occurred to me or whatever time zone is one time zone East of Eastern in South America. You could definitely get that. I would just be like, Ooh, that would be so nice as Ke as Kelly would say, juicy, um, to have the moon <laughs> between the, between those, because it has such an important role ruling the 10th. Anyway, I think you're I think you're thinking about Western time zone because if it's Eastern, the moon's going to be earlier and it's going to be not oh, in between. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. So middle, so people in Hawaii, um, this one's for you. Yeah, thank you for the correction. Um, yeah, I want the moon to be later, not earlier. Yeah, you want it to go a bit beyond. Um, yeah, so basically that the moon is maybe early 18 degrees and a few minutes, so it's technically just past the sextile to Jupiter, and then applying to um by a few minutes to venus yep yeah. exactly yeah and we that had a be, term that for would that would be perfect yeah that showed up a few years ago i don't know if you guys remember a benefic sandwich right yeah there were some other yeah, less so, appropriate terms thrown around as well well i i went with the appropriate one <laughs> yeah totally <clears throat> but i mean austin like the chart is quite decent you know chris you've got some lovely i mean you're basically getting the moon venus um jupiter kind of collab there which is always great especially with venus and jupiter having so much dignity but yeah austin what you're saying is there is a, a window of time of probably just a few hours where the moon is going to be separating from jupiter and applying to venus and, and that's going to be really nice yeah, Let's see, that'll be about an hour and a half. Yeah, you just may not be able to get the right ascendant. Um, that's that's the challenge with electional work. Right. But yeah, anyway, right great. Ascendant. Yeah, there's a lot to love here. And part of fortune on Venus. Bonus, win. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing. Yeah. So this is our, our best electional chart for the month of September. It's at the very end of the month. Most of the other elections are actually at the beginning of the month. So we picked out, I think, three or four other electional charts, and a lot of them are Mercury elections with Mercury and Virgo. So that'll be on the Auspicious Elections podcast, which we just recorded and are about to release in the next few days, which is available to patrons on the $5 and $10 tiers. So if you want to get access to that, you can sign up through our page on patreon.com. Just search for the Astrology Podcast. All right, so that's the election of the month, and now we're getting pretty far into the end of the month at this point. Are we skipping over any major transits? We talked about Saturn stationing direct. We talked about Jupiter, which happens on the 18th. Uh, we talked about the Jupiter-Neptune square, which goes exact on the 21st. What else? Are we overlooking anything late in the month? Well, the, the sun does move uh, into Libra. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Libra season starts as it always does around this time, around the uh, 23rd. And 
we do not thankfully get Mars ingressing in, into Libra yet. That's saved for the following month for October. So most of this month is just like Mars moving through Virgo and all of the other planets are left, you know, sort of on their own, doing relatively okay without Mars for a while, for the first time in a while as they're going through Libra. Um, any other outer planet activity or anything like that? Saturn's direct, but it's still conjunct the south node. Yeah, they've I mean been, that th- yeah. They actually they've been get- pacing for months. Uh, and so now that Saturn's direct, that's actually gonna mean they're gonna they're gonna conjoin again, but they're gonna start to depart because yeah. the south node's uh, normal movement is clockwise and Saturn's normal movement is counterclockwise. However, when yeah. Saturn was retrograde, they were both regressing at nearly the same rate through the zodiac. So we've had that Saturn south node just pacing, pacing, pacing. Um, but the direct motion will give us the last conjunction, and then they'll begin. Then they'll start separating, where the south node is going towards the beginning of Capricorn, and Saturn is going towards the end. And so that that's something to look forward to. That's not something. That's a consequence of the direct station this month, but it's in. Uh, but it's not something that it, they don't actually pull apart uh, until uh, until the uh, fourth quarter. Yeah, but it but, is. I think but, it is. What, so more of the so, same. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. More of the same. Yeah, but it, I think it is. You know, if you have been finding the Saturn South Node, you know, super close pairing really difficult because it is one of the signatures of this year to know that we're reaching the last hurrah with that, you know, whatever that has been dredging you through or forcing you to kind of let go of or reconstruct, deconstruct it. Yeah. I've got September 28th, 13 cap for the last exact conjunction of Saturn in the South node. And uh, you're right, Austin, we don't really feel the effects of that until October, November, as they actually start to get a few degrees apart. Um, and I think for people who have planets around 13, 14, and maybe even 15 degrees of the cardinal signs, this couple of month period is pretty full on because with Saturn coming into station at 13 Capricorn, he's actually spending a lot of time around the 14, you know, 13 degree marker, you know, over a couple of months. He's like, you know, mid August to early September, he's at 14 Capricorn. And then by end of September and, and most of October, he's back at 14 Capricorn. So there is this sort of extended emphasis of Saturn, particularly on those degrees. And, you know, with the South Node there, is just adding a level of intensity and perhaps destabilization or discomfort. Uh, so, you know, I've had, I've seen this coming up in client work a lot with people with planets or even angles around those 13, 14 degrees of any of the cardinal signs. So that includes you if you're, if you've got planets or your ascendant or your midheaven at 13, 14 of Aries, Cancer, Libra, or Capricorn, because the aspect configuration coming out of Saturn is affecting all of those degrees in those, those other three signs as well. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it looks like the, um, you know, the squares that the planets in Libra make to the South Node in Saturn um, will be the, 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 the last hurrah of that year-long Saturn-South Node theme before, um, before it degrades relatively quickly and yeah. gives way to other configurations. And that's very much the last week of September, isn't it, where we have Venus and Mercury certainly going through and squaring Saturn, um, just as Saturn is getting so tight with the South Node there. Yeah. But Jupiter's direct, 
and Square Neptune, right? Yeah. Kind of same old, same old story. Uranus is doing its thing over there in Taurus. Pluto, Pluto is creeping <laughs> inevitably. Yes. Uh, where it's been, you know, all year. So yeah, our our outer yeah. planets aren't aren't are, are, that's that's the status with the outer planets. Planets. And look, a special mention of Jupiter and Sag, like we are starting to get towards the pointy end of the year and we have a very time limited opportunity for anything that he may be able to give you or that you want to take from his time. I mean, we're doing the forecast for September and after this month, you got two months and a couple of days mm-hmm. of Jupiter and Sag and then we're done with it for 12 years. So even though it's not it, perfect, you know, um, if if a planet is activating Jupiter, just take what you can from it because yeah. well, this will be it, basically. Well, and um, I'm reminded of what you said about the big transition in Venus's essential dignity from Virgo to Libra. So yeah. the opposite happens. Um, we go from <laughs> fall to rulership there. The opposite happens with Jupiter moving with Jupiter. into Capricorn in December. Yeah. Yeah. We go from December. rulership to fall. And yeah. it's not just, it's not just oh, Jupiter's in its fall in Capricorn. It's co-present with malefics galore. And yes. so the, the, that which is Jupiterian will be much harder. It'll be, you know, there's a, a much larger um, load to bear. Doesn't mean yes. it's impossible. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean it won't hit some people exactly right. But in, in terms of you know, in terms of the numbers, for most people, it's going to be way harder to Jupiter um, for all from December onward than it is for these last three months of Jupiter and Sag. Yeah. And so you know, get it in, get it a strike while the iron is hot. Yes. Uh, yeah, because we've, we, you know, helping Jupiter this month is that second half of the month Venus in Libra boost. Um, we do get another little Venus boost because I think Venus returns to Sag before Jupiter departs uh, in November. But, you know, that's a, a, a teaser for the November forecast. Uh, so take what you can in the second half of September with Venus, Jupiter and uh, go forth. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, and next month, things will clear up a little bit once Mercury gets out of Virgo and is no longer squaring Jupiter. Once it moves into Libra, it'll clear up some okay Jupiter elections for that month as well, especially next month. So oh, when Mars goes into Libra. Yeah, it'll, it'll help Jupiter. It just creates a little bit of frustration from Libra to Capricorn. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but just in terms of if you want it, take advantage of Jupiter being in Sag next month is going to be the safer month in terms of Mars departing from that square finally. Nice. All right. Well, I think that brings us pretty much to the end of September here because we've checked off all of the major boxes in terms of the outer planet alignments. Uh, We've focused a lot on the transition early in the month of planets moving through Virgo and then eventually moving into Libra uh, by later in the month. And I think we've pretty much covered anything. Is there any major things that we're overlooking, or does anybody in our live audience have any questions uh, or points before we wrap up? Uh, we've done a good treatment of this very busy month. The image that keeps coming to my mind is is um, what Austin, you and I were talking about earlier about that sort of juggling and just getting a lot done in short spaces of time, especially in the first part of the month with the the kind of extreme Virgo 
emphasis because that is unusual to have Sun, Mars, Mercury, Venus all in Virgo together. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's a lot to get done. There's yeah. a lot to get done. And, Productive um, and busy again, for the first half. Yeah, and and not uh, and a lot of good opportunities to get things. How should we say? Bring things into equilibrium with that Mercury Venus in Libra, um, which is different than just grinding and getting yes. it done. You know, just Virgo stuff, especially with Mars, there is very grind, like accomplish things. But then, you know, Libra follows Virgo, and it's like, okay, so now that you've done all those things, like getting there's the 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 task of getting the life shape so that it's balanced and you're not hyper focused on just one thing. You know, Virgo's strength and weakness is to hyper-focus, but Libra's strength and weakness is to look at um, the different pieces of life in relationship to one another. And so, you know, if 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 people are going to have a job this September, it's first half, get all the details and then step back the second half and make sure everything's balanced so you're going into the fourth quarter looking good. Yeah. Great tips. Yeah. That sounds like good advice. All right, guys. I think we have successfully covered the forecast for September. Then, uh, so right. we're we're going to be back again next month, one month from now, to talk about the forecast for October, which is weird to say of two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, I'm going to go to the the Baltimore Astrology Conference, the NCJR conference here next week. So I'm looking forward to seeing some listeners there. If anybody's listening to this episode before the conference happens. Uh, there were also some other conference announcements. I think um, two sets of speaker lists were just released for the two main conferences next year, right? Yeah, I think both ESA, which is the September 2020 conference in Denver, and then NORWAC, which is the May 2020 conference in Seattle, both published their speaker lists. So uh, that started to generate a lot of buzz about what events people are going to next year and where you can catch different astrologers throughout the year. So that's exciting. Yeah, and it looks like there's a lot of great talks and a lot of great speakers at both of those conferences next year. Yeah, it's going to be some good good pickings on the conference circuit. And where could right. we catch you, Kelly? Next year or next month? <laughs> next year at the conferences <laughs> we just year. mentioned. Yeah, I'm actually very lucky to be invited to both of them. So I will be presenting at NORWAC in May and then presenting at... Uh, at ESAR in September. I think the three of us are going to do a little something something in September next year. Indeed. And what yeah, about I will you, be Austin? At, you tell us. I will be at Norwalk as well. And for the first time, I will be joined on the speaker list uh, by my skillful wife, Caitlin Kopic. Very excited. She will be giving her, her first talk at an astrology conference. Um, so that's exciting. And that was and her probably first astrology conference that she attended, right? Yep. Yep. That was the first conference she attended. We got together uh, in the Norwalk parking lot. <laughs> it's that sounds very romantic. <laughs> it's so much more modest than you would ever believe. We both have the rulers of our seventh house in Virgo, so it, right. trust me the the like the uh, saying that is so much dirtier and more fun <laughs> than our very our very careful, thoughtful conversation. Well, of um, course, it was but, a conversation, right? Your seventh rulers are both in Virgo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah uh, we got together there. Uh, it was Kate's first astrology conference. 
And so, yeah, a mere 12 years later, she'll be speaking for the first time at an astrology conference, which is pretty exciting. That's super exciting. And and this is like sort of a shameless plug for something I was involved in, but Caitlin is the nice segue here that I believe she just also had one of her first articles published in print in the Wellbeing Astrology magazine, which is just on newsstands now out of Australia. And uh, Caitlin contributed a gorgeous article an introduction to planetary magic. Yeah, that just came out and you edited that entire magazine. Um, and it looks like it has a, a super great lineup of like a bunch of articles of a bunch of great astrologers. Well, yeah, I was, you know, every year I'm fortunate enough to be able to select some of the articles and the writers. And uh, yeah, I we also got Lisa Scheim in as well, Chris. So, so um, that was very exciting. Her article, both Caitlin and Lisa's articles have really touched me. Um, and Lisa's article on um, finding joy and meaning in the birth chart is something that I think is going to bring some really fresh ideas and get people thinking about some of the more positives in astrology. But I know that was actually based on a talk Lisa did earlier this year at Norwalk, I think. Yeah, that was her Norwalk talk this year, and it went over so well that apparently she was invited back to give two talks at Norwalk next year. So she's yeah. also one of the speakers that will be there. And I meant to ask, can people order the well-being, the, the astrology magazine like internationally or how does that work? Yeah, totally. So you can order um, the hard copy. It does ship from Australia and you will find that postage is expensive because it's quite um, a high quality publication and it weighs a lot. So it, it's mm -hmm. heavy. Um, but you can also buy a um, an e-version, which I've already seen people putting up in their Instagram stories. So there is a post on my website right now, you know, Wellbeing Astrology 2020, and it has both the links. So you can pop in and see whether you feel like paying the postage or if you just want to order the digital version, um, the links for both are there. And I've got a full list of everyone who's contributed and some of the things that they've written on. Awesome. Yeah. Well, people should check that out because it's like you got like ten or fifteen like amazing astrologers, all all to write good articles, plus forecast, plus everything. Yeah, there's a moon calendar in it um, for 2020, and then yeah, some detailed year ahead horoscopes um, as well, written by Cassandra Tyndall, who's another uh, astro friend and colleague as well. So yeah, she, this is the first year we've had her. I actually stepped one back of the from, water trio. She's one one of my gals, the water trio. Um, yeah, so that's very exciting. Lots of lots of growth, which is good. All right. So Kelly, are you doing anything like in September? Oh Pulling yeah. Back the I, time frame a little bit. Yeah, coming back to the present. Yes, I have my next four-part online training, which is about counseling skills for difficult aspects. So that starts September 9th, and it'll be four nights or four live classes throughout the month with some online discussion. And if, for those who are really keen, there is homework. Um, as well. It's not compulsory, but some students really enjoy the chance for feedback. So yeah, I think that's what I have going on this month. What about you? You're, you've got uh, two classes going uh, or more? Yeah, three. All my classes are in motion. Um, okay. So no, no enrollment is no longer open. I elected a bunch of clever stuff uh, in August that's going to come out uh, via Sphere and Sundry in September. Got, again, some stuff you might expect, some stuff you didn't expect. Got some kind of sneaky, but yes. excellent fixed star elections. And I've got As Above, uh, As Above in Portland on the 14th. And so there are actually some people who booked early but couldn't make it. So I think we have a couple tickets made available because it sold out in two weeks. 
but then people are like, and I can't actually make it. So I think we have a couple like available. So if people want to come, um, they should absolutely go and see if there are any left. And then let's see, is there anything else? Uh, oh, uh, you know, this isn't a plug for me, but uh, I just want to say the Northwest, uh, as far as the esoteric uh, Northwest, um, we have as above in Portland, the 14th, the Texan Traditions uh, Conference is in September is the air, excuse me, in Seattle is the next weekend, which is awesome. And then Demetra is doing her retreat uh, in, I think, Eugene or somewhere in Oregon at the Bend. end of September. So yeah, that, you know, that, that second half of September being full of benefit configurations, at least here in the Northwest. Love it. So we should all just relocate there temporarily. Yeah. Well, you know, we that got room. Nice. Yeah. Slumber and party at Austin's house. Love uh, it. Chris, yeah. what do you have going on? What do you want to talk about? Um, I, well, I was thinking of actually attending for the first time the Text and Traditions Conference because I'm getting into like old books and I hear there's a lot of some good old books there and otherwise like nice books. But I don't otherwise have anything going on except for being at the NCGR conference through early September and then returning. Um, I have moved into like a new phase of the whole Patreon thing where the last funding goal was to sort of that we said over the past, over a year ago was to be able to get a place at the podcast recording studio, which of course we accomplished earlier this year and has been nice being able to record stuff in person. But now the next challenge is like figuring out how to get people out here so we can actually record stuff in the studio in person, including having you two out. We're hoping later this year in November yes. uh, for possibly recording the next yearly forecast episode for 2020. So I've set a new funding goal on Patreon and in order to help accomplish that so I can either fly people out here to interview them in the studio, especially um, older astrologers where I'm trying to get some good biographical and other technical episodes, or alternatively fly myself out to some of those older astrologers if I need to do the interview with them in person at their home. So I set this new funding goal and I launched a new tier on Patreon for a $25 tier where people can get a producer credit for each episode of the podcast that is released that they're helping to produce. So I just launched that and we have our first three producers. It's a producer slash slash advertiser credit. So our first patron I wanted to thank was Christine Stone, who's actually one of the longest patrons who's been supporting the show over the past year, I think ever since I, I signed up on Patreon. And she's our first producer who signed up for a producer credit. So thanks to her for funding this episode. And then also thanks to our advertisers, which are Astro Gold for Mac OS and iOS. And that's actually the astrology app that I use on my Android phone to like look up, uh, for example, where Mars was hitting the midheaven earlier when all of that noise uh, was happening, which consequently now that it's off the midheaven and the rising sign has changed is no longer happening. Uh, but they make a great astrology app. And people keep asking me about when Solar Fire is going to be available for the Mac. And I, I checked in with them again recently, and they still said, I don't know, check back in a few months, maybe later this year. But Astro Gold is already like a mini version of Solar Fire that works on Macs. So you can actually find that at astrogold.io, and it's a pretty good program. And then our second sponsor is the Portland School of Astrology. Uh, which, speaking of the Pacific Northwest and Austin's current home state, is a nice like resource that I know a lot of people we know have gone through the Portland School of Astrology, right? Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you guys and know I, I've 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 guest taught there. Have you? Have you given a guest lecture there yet, Kelly? 
I haven't, no. Um, I would love to, though. I understand it's a really amazing school and the crew that are teaching out there have really pulled something together because I think there's something quite special that happens when you can actually study together in person. So right. I've always really admired what they've done and how they've really been able to grow and develop their program out there because they've been around for a few years now. Yeah, it seems like yeah, absolutely. Like, a, like a decade now or something. Um, but Portland seems like one of the big hubs for astrology and has for several years now. And I think part of that is because of them having this in-person school and the sort of diversity of their curriculum. So you can find out more information about that at portlandastrology.org. So if anybody wants to sign up to be a producer credit to help us have more interviews in person, then you can find out more information by going to our page on patreon.com and doing a search for the Astrology Podcast, and then you'll find the $25 tier over on the bottom right corner. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thanks for bearing with me with the sound issues. In the future, I'm going to avoid putting Mars near the midheaven uh, shortly after the episode begins. Yeah. Oh, thanks for having me. It was always fun. Yeah. I'm glad yeah, that you're both good. more settled in your places and you're both looking good and looking more settled and less harried than as you were moving over the past few months. Yeah. I, I, Definitely feeling less harried. It was really like something else. And uh, I just want to say thanks to you guys and to everyone listening for bearing with me. Because I feel now that I'm starting to feel more settled, it's making me realize how unsettled I have been really since the start of July. So yeah, this is much better. Do you notice the same, Austin? Mm, Sort of. I was very aware of how unsettled I was. Okay. I think your book collection looks more settled in the background, and that's my main litmus test for any astrologer's like state of mind is just how well arranged their book collection looks like. <laughs> just you wait, I'm getting new cabinets. Okay. And Kelly, you might have some books in the background next yeah, time. Yeah, I'm going to take up the book challenge and I shall prepare a uh, bookshelf for perusal next month. Brilliant. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing that. that. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to all the live, the patrons who joined us for the live recording of this episode and everybody else that supports us. So that's it. So thanks for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.